Welcome everybody to Crystal Kyle and Friends. As we are recording this today, South Africa has just presented their case at the ICJ. They are, of course, alleging that Israel is in the process of committing genocide. They're asking for an immediate injunction. And so to analyze the strength of their argument and anticipate what some of the counter arguments may be coming from the Israeli side, we are honored to be joined by scholar, author, activist, Dr. Norman Finkelstein, author of many books, including one that is very relevant to this moment, Gaza, an inquest into its martyrdom. And it's always an honor to see you, sir. Well, thank you for having me, and it's a pleasure to have you. Yeah, I did a program last night uh, with Moeen Rabani, a kind of preliminary to the hearings, and I did quote you uh, because I thought you made a very smart remark. You noted the fact that the South Africa submission was heavily dependent on UN documents, UN officials, UN statements. And that increases the weight of its submission because for the uh, International Court of Justice to dismiss the South African complaint is in effect to dismiss the entire UN and the ICJ, the International Court of Justice, is the official legal arm of the United Nations. So by quoting UN documents so extensively, they put the ICJ in a very uncomfortable position of saying the organization of which they're the legal arm, that organization lacks credibility. Right. And, that's, <laughs> and that point you made, which hadn't occurred to me, that by leaning so heavily on UN documents and UN statements, it kind of cornered the court. Uh, either it affirms those documents and makes a plausible finding of genocide, or it denies them, but then in effect, it's rebutting, rebuffing. It's rebuffing and rebutting, actually, rebuffing and rebutting the organization of which it is the legal arm. Well, it's a rare moment when I think of something that you haven't already thought of. So <laughs> thank you. And thank you for that. Um, we have a little bit. I watched some of South Africa's presentation this morning. We're recording this on, on Thursday, just so everybody knows. I understand you were able to watch most, but not all of it. I just yeah, wanted to and that's play. Very, uh, I want to just say that's very unusual for me. I usually watch or read everything twice, and I want to apologize for that. It's just, you know, it's a part of my, so to speak, scholarly, scholarly bona fides. I had misunderstood it to be that their presentation would last two hours. In fact, according to the screen, it lasts four hours. I got through three hours before I had to do your uh, interview for which we were scheduled. And immediately after this, because I have a whole lot of interviews scheduled today, I'm yeah. going to go back, go through the end, to the end, and then tonight I'll watch it again. So the portion that I was able to watch this morning um, lay down what I would describe as a pretty compelling case, once again, relying on a lot of UN official statements and analyses, also relying on the statements of various Israeli officials up to and including Bibi Netanyahu uh, himself, who, of course, is prime minister. I wanted to play for people just a snippet of part of the presentation talking about the level of mass death that has been inflicted on Palestinians in Gaza. Let's take a listen to that. In the first three weeks alone, following 7 October, Israel deployed 6,000 bombs per week. At least 200 times, 
it has deployed 2,000-pound bombs in southern areas of Palestine designated as safe. These bombs have also decimated the north, including refugee camps. 2,000-pound bombs are some of the biggest and most destructive bombs available. They are dropped by lethal fighter jets that are used to strike targets on the ground by one of the world's most resourced armies. Israel has killed an unparalleled and unprecedented number of civilians with the full knowledge of how many civilian lives each bomb will take. Dr. Finkelstein, what were some of the major takeaways for you from the uh, portion of the South Africa presentation you were able to hear today? Uh, there were many reactions. There were personal reactions, uh, and then there were professional, scholarly reactions. I can leave the personal reactions for later. If you care to hear them, you may want to focus on the uh, scholarly side. First of all, we have to begin with the fact that South Africa was at a serious disadvantage in this case. Uh, the disadvantage is this. South Africa presented an 84-page complaint or brief to the uh, ICJ, uh, so we knew exactly what they were going to argue. And the presentations were uh, elaborations on or reiterations of what was in that brief. But they don't know what Israel is going to argue, because Israel did not present a brief. And so they had to speculate. If this is going to be your argument, then we say this. If that's going to be your argument, then we say that. So in effect, they had to squander a large amount of time trying to anticipate and preempt the argument which in fact South Africa, excuse me, which in fact Israel may not make tomorrow. Mm. We don't know what, so they'll have the full time to make their case, whereas South Africa had to expend or squander a large amount of time trying to figure out what their argument might be and trying to respond to it. Uh, so, in my opinion, that was a significant disadvantage for South Africa, and I'm surprised. I don't know the protocol of the court. I was surprised to learn that you're not obliged to submit a complaint, a written complaint in advance, mm -hmm. uh, that you can just spring whatever arguments you want the next day. Uh, so, having said that, uh, I would say my prediction, because I did a program with my close friend and comrade, Louine Rabani, my prediction last night was more or less borne out. Everybody likes to claim they were right, and I have to be careful of that kind of hubris, but it was more or less borne out. South Africa had two possible approaches. One approach would be to focus on the law and to say, legally, this is a genocide. And if you look at this text and that text and that text, it meets the textual requirement of a genocide. Another strategy was to pile on 
one layer after another layer after another layer after another layer of the horrors that Israel has inflicted on Gaza, such that whether it is or not technically a genocide and whether it squeezes into that definition or not, it puts the court into a completely impossible position of saying, well, yes, what you describe is horrible, what you describe is terrible, what you describe is awful, what you describe is ghastly, what you describe is horrendous, but it's not a genocide. So I would say if you look at the bulk of the proceedings, there were two lawyers, or two, yeah, two lawyers, uh, John Dugard and a second fellow whose name I can't quite now remember, they focused on the legal issues. And the legal issues are essentially, number one, it'll sound very technical to listeners, whether this constitutes a dispute under international law, under the protocols of the ICJ. Uh, that is to say, whether you have standing to bring this case before the ICJ. And it's a very technical question, what constitutes a dispute? So John Dugard, who I think it's fair to say is the most eminent, also the eldest uh, of the um, representatives from South Africa, he handled the question of dispute because he anticipated that Israel might argue that this does not qualify as a dispute under the protocols of the ICJ, and therefore they should dismiss it out of hand. That's called a jurisdictional question. Does the court have jurisdiction over this particular issue? And another lawyer um, uh, focused on the legal question. You have to prove that since they're bringing the case under the Genocide Convention, you have to prove that Israel's actions can only be traceable back to a genocidal intent. So let's say all of these actions are horrible, terrible, awful, horrendous. However, uh, they didn't, they, the, the intent wasn't genocidal. Let's say the intent was to defeat the enemy, not to destroy in whole or in part a national, religious, racial, or ethnic group. Uh, you have to prove that the intent was uh, genocidal. And there are several issues there. First of all, uh, this is only a preliminary case. So all South Africa has to, I, I don't want to say all, all, although that term was constantly used. I think it did harm to the South African case. Hmm. Um, you have to prove there's a plausible case for genocide. You don't have to prove beyond a shadow of a doubt. At this point in the uh, proceedings, what you have to prove is a plausible case. So he argued on that ground that our, we just have to, he said, we merely have to make a plausible case. And the other argument is that you can commit war crimes, crimes against humanity, all sorts of crimes. They may not be genocide, but the crimes in the real world often overlap with genocide. So the fact that these might be war crimes, crimes against humanity, and so forth, 
doesn't preclude that simultaneously they also might be genocide. So um, if Israel were to argue, uh, okay, you, uh, uh, we don't agree, but we're not going to dispute that uh, your claim, we're not going to dispute your claim that war crimes were committed, that's still not genocide. And the uh, South African argument was, well, the fact that they were war crimes or crimes against humanity doesn't preclude that they were simultaneously acts of genocide or genocide. So uh, those were the two legal, uh, the main legal briefs. Oh, and there's the third. The third was by um, Vaughn Lowe. I have to say, you know, I know a lot of these personalities through correspondence. I know John Dugard personally. Vaughn Lowe, uh, he argued the another case before the ICJ pertaining to Israel, namely the wall that Israel was building in the West Bank. That was in July 2004. And I was in correspondence with Vaughn Lowe back then. And he had some really very kind words to say about something I wrote. Uh, and I had written extensively on the wall case. And uh, it was, you know, for me, here are two people who I had uh, who were very kind to me. I'll, I'll just hold on for one half moment. So uh, John Dugard, who's the, as I say, the most eminent and also the oldest of the um, representatives uh, for one of my books, the, oh yeah, the Gaza book. He wrote, Norman Finkelstein, probably the most serious scholar on the conflict in the Middle East has written an excellent book uh, so to be told by um, John Dugard that the most, uh, let's see, the most serious scholar on the whole subject uh, was a compliment, and Vaughn Law was equally generous uh, in his praise. Now, you might think this is me tooting my own horn, but I, it's so rare that I get praised by professional scholars. Uh, I get praised by people like yourself, but mm. for people from within the academic world, it's a very rare event, you know, sort of like spotting a dodo bird. So <laughs> well, you've, take, you've more than earned it. So I, I take a certain amount of pride in it. Uh, so Vaughn Lowe also, uh, he, he stressed uh, the legal side and he made a very, <clears throat> you know, he made a very strong point. He says, however horrendous October 7th might have been, and South Africa has acknowledged uh, the horrendousness of October 7th, he made this a point that nothing under international law can justify a genocide. Right. So if you're going to come along and say how horrible, how terrible, how awful October 7th was, how it shocked and how it traumatized Israel, uh, then we're not disputing that. But that can't justify a genocide. Right. Um, so I want to just stress again as you could see from what I've already just said, um, they didn't know what the arguments are going to be by Israel. So they were trying to cover every possible contingency. Now, Israel may, um, uh, may not make any of these arguments. Uh, and then the other presentations were, and with no, uh, no uh, attempt at disparagement at all, but you could say the other presentations, there were, I think, about seven presentations. The other presentations were, uh, the other uh, four, were overwhelmingly emotive. 
but emotive in the sense, well, <laughs> you know, it is a crime that shocks humanity. You know, that's how um, these crimes are described, a crime that shocks humanity. And shock is an emotive feeling. Right. Shock is not a reasoned uh, response. It's a response of your whole being, of your viscera, and of your mind, and of your soul, and of your conscience. So there's uh, soul, conscience, mind, uh, which um, uh, uh, so which are emotive. They touch. They go to feelings, and of course, that's completely, in my view, it's legitimate. Uh, and they did exactly what I expected they would do and what anyone would expect they do. They simply layer upon layer upon layer upon layer of the horrors that have been inflicted on the people of Gaza. Uh, one gentleman, uh, he quoted a, I guess it was either, I think it was uh, uh, either one of the major humanitarian organizations. He said, in all of his life's experience, he had never seen something like this. And he said it has three characteristics, the size, the speed, and the size, speed, and uh, it'll scope. come to me with three words that began with S. Scope. Size, what, maybe scope. scope. Yeah, I don't think it was scope. Size, speed, and severity. In terms of size, size would be scope, but yours is a better word than size. I wish you had used scope. Uh, <laughs> size, speed, and severity. He said in his whole life, he had never experienced it. And then one of the other uh, lawyers said, there are people in, this, in these organizations that go back to the killing fields in Cambodia. They go back to 1979. You know, I'm old enough to go back that far. I remember it quite vividly. And he said, there are people who go back to the killing fields of Cambodia and they've never seen anything like this. Wow. And another person, one of the earlier presenters uh, who, go, who went through intent, where he started to quote all the statements by the government officials, he made a, you know, a perfectly valid point. He said, no country ever admits to genocide. They're, all, they're always very cautious about what they say in public. And even if you read the Nazi statements, you know, during the genocide, there were kinds of what you might call allusions to, allusions to mm. what's happening. But remember, the Nazi genocide occurred in the dark. <clears throat> Technically, the German people weren't supposed to know what's going on, let alone the world. Uh, and you will remember that uh, when the first reports start to come out of the genocide, when the first reports of the Jewish genocide start to come out, uh, there were some people who leaked out information, some emissaries who leaked out information. Most people didn't believe it. Hmm. Even Jews couldn't believe what they were being told, which is another way of saying the genocide wasn't in the open, and as the person said, most of the times, government leaders are very cautious about what they say. But even before there were the conventions, you know, making this illegal, you didn't say that. And he made the point that the Israelis have said it at every level. He, he made the point 
every level of government, every level of society, and throughout the military. So he says, uh, Netanyahu, uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu makes a statement about Amalek. So then you could say, well, maybe he was just being figurative, maybe he was just being biblical. But then, in one of those rare moments in the hearings, they showed video footage. And they showed video footage of the soldiers repeating what Netanyahu said and saying, this is Amalek, we're going to kill all of them, and they're dancing and they're very cheerful. That particular footage was targeting not Hamas, but Hezbollah. So I assume that was footage from the North Front. Mm. Uh, but the general idea that the soldiers had internalized what the senior government officials were saying, so you can't detach the statements at the upper tier from the actions at the lower tier. There's a straight arrow line. Uh, it was a very very, I was, found that really significant too. It was and a they very, also they also showed the soldiers talking about uninvolved. There are no uninvolved civilians, which is something I believe President Herzog had said. That's and this correct. is again an anticipation of Israel saying, "Oh, we didn't mean those things. They're just sounding yeah. off. This is just populist rhetoric." Multiple politicians. That's one of the the theories the of their defense. That multiple politicians threatened nuking Gaza. Well, That's on the record one. too. There was one, uh, a, a junior member of uh, the cabinet. Uh, he's the, the person in charge of the cabinet minister for antiquities. He said, let's nuke Gaza. Uh, and again, they were anticipating because then he was demoted. And so they had to anticipate again. Then they said, well, he's still a standing member in the Knesset. Uh, they had to figure out every possible defense that was going to be uh, made and then try to respond to it. Um, but that presentation, you know, it's a uh, allow me just a brief bit of history. Israel, during its previous operations in the past, uh, was very free with its language. It said stuff like they're saying now. Mm. However, in after Operation Cast Lead, those statements came back to haunt them with what was called the Richard Goldstone Report. Uh, Richard Goldstone was also a South African, but unlike those represented here today, he was Jewish and he was a self-identified, I'm not using the term, in ter you know, to disparage him, he was a self-identified Zionist. And he was appointed by the Human Rights Council to investigate crimes committed during Operation Cast Lead. Well, he composed this 400-page report, and it was full of those statements hmm. made by the Israeli government. After that, Israel learned a lesson. Don't make those statements, because it might come back to you to haunt you in a legal proceeding. So in their next mowings of the lawn, uh, Operation Pillar of the Defense, Operation Protective Edge, they didn't make those statements. At least they didn't make it in the numerical quant quantity as this time. So what happened October 7th? 
that allowed for this explosion of statements. I mean, now, no exaggeration, there are about a half dozen people who have composed these huge compendiums of just the statements made. One, I think the most exhaustive is two by my two young colleagues, uh, uh, Jamie Stern Weiner and Yaniv Kogan. Jamie, Jamie Stern Weiner is half, he's Jewish and half Israeli. Yaniv Kogan is Israeli. And they uh, produce, it's called Fighting Amalek in Gaza, this huge compendium. And, but there are several others, you know, people send me and send me and send me, can you post my compendium and can you post my compendium? And they're all very excellent. So the question is what happened? They had that warning already and they had stopped. And now it just went berserk. I think it was basically because they had gone mad. They had gone, you know, it was like the id coming out of them. There was no longer any uh, control over that suppressed id, the hatred, the loathing of the people of Gaza. And that loathing and hatred was uh, escalated by two factors in October 7. No, number one, no question the magnitude of the crime. Don't find me diminishing it. No question the magnitude of the crime. But the other thing was this vermin in Gaza, this human refuse in Gaza, they had outwitted the Israeli ubermenschen, the mm. supermen. They had outsmarted them. Israel with its vaunted intelligence capacities. It was a kind of what you might call a or the image it projected was a James Bond writ large. That was the image it projected. projected. And then along comes this vermin in Gaza, these untermenschen, these subhumans, and they had outsmarted them, outwitted them, and reduce them to a state of humiliation. And what's even worse from the Israeli point of view, had significantly contracted the image it projected to the world. Mm -hmm. Because everyone thought, believed, Israel is invincible. You don't have a military option against Israel. The only ones who disagreed were the Hezbollah, uh, in particular, the head of Hezbollah, Syed Nasrallah. He kept saying, no, they're not so strong. Don't fool yourself. And then he, he began to ridicule them. And he said, Israel's like a spider's web. You just blow on it and it disintegrates. And nobody knew whether to take that literally or not. But suddenly on October 7th, because I've talked to many, obviously I've talked to many Arabs, many Palestinians, many Muslims, and this, the thought has suddenly sunk in. Maybe it's not as strong as it is made out to be. Maybe so Norm, let me ask you a question. Uh, let me ask you a question about Netanyahu. So guys in the control room, run that clip and then I have a question about it. I want to make a few points absolutely clear. Israel has no intention of permanently occupying Gaza 
or displacing its civilian population. Israel is fighting Hamas terrorists, not the Palestinian population. And we are doing so in full compliance with international law. The IDF is doing its utmost to minimize civilian casualties, while Hamas is doing its utmost to maximize them by using Palestinian civilians as human shields. The IDF urges Palestinian civilians to leave war zones by disseminating leaflets, making phone calls, providing safe passage corridors, while Hamas prevents Palestinians from leaving at gunpoint and often with gunfire. Our goal is to rid Gaza of Hamas terrorists and free our hostages. Once this is achieved, Gaza can be demilitarized and de-radicalized, thereby creating a possibility for a better future for Israel and Palestinians alike. So now, to me, he actually seems pretty scared there. The fact that he seem, he feels compelled to come out and make a statement like totally that. Totally agree. Yeah, but let me ask you this, though, because this is my fear. My fear is, like, my instinct says the U.S. and Israel are going to have some sort of trick up their sleeve in the same way that there was no accountability for the U.S. and the war on terror and the many crimes we committed. I fear that they have some sort of trick up their sleeve that'll just make it so that there's no accountability and no consequences. Do you fear that, too, or do you think, uh, actually, they're kind of against the ropes right now? Uh, well, I agree with every observation you made. Number one, that was so out of character for the prime minister of the state of Israel, who's normally very arrogant, and not just Netanyahu, every prime minister, and also assumes that with the U.S.'s backing and protection, that it has impunity. So it will never be held accountable. That particular... Um, uh, clip was extremely humiliating for Netanyahu mm -hmm. because it was basically they had uh, they had defied spat on all of these UN and international organizations and suddenly he's on his hands and knees pleading with them we really aren't bad we really aren't we're, we're doing everything in our power uh, never. I, I can't, you know, maybe people uh, have better memories than me on this one, but I can't ever recall uh, a, a Israeli prime minister. Actually, when UN action was feared uh, in the distant past with the first prime minister of the state of Israel, David Ben-Gurion, he famously coined an expression which everybody came to repeat. He would say, when somebody said to him, what about the UN? And he said, um shlum. Uh, just dismissing it as a, a nothing body, um shum. Uh, this was not Netanyahu in that clip. It wasn't dismissing uh, the International Court of Justice. Now, to your second point, I have been in touch by, in correspondence with one of the members of the delegation, and he said exactly the same thing as you. He said he thinks they're going to pull a dirty trick, but they don't know what it is. They're not yet sure what's going, what it's going to be. Um, so that may come to pass. I, I don't know. Um, I didn't mention a footnote to Richard Goldstone. Uh, the footnote is he produced this, he as well as three others, it was a team of four, but he was the senior person. He produced a scathing report on what Israel did during Operation Cast Lead, saying they committed multiple war crimes and probably some crimes that could rise to crimes against humanity. But here's the footnote. He retracted the report. Mm. 
a year later, April 4th, 2000, I think April 4th, 2010 or 2011, can't remember now. Oh, excuse me, I don't know why I'm saying April 4th. It was April 1st. Because at the beginning, we all thought it was an April Fool's joke. I'm serious. <laughs> it was published in the Washington Post. It was a retraction. And I remember the moment uh, when it was, the retraction was published, uh, something died inside me because that was a very powerful weapon, the Goldstone Report. Actually, mm -hmm. Israel called it the three, one of the three biggest uh, threats to it. It said, Iran, Hezbollah, Iran, uh, Hezbollah, and the Goldstone Report. This is what Netanyahu said then were the three biggest threats facing Israel. And he retracted, uh, and I remember I wrote an email to John Dugard at the time, uh, expressing my extreme uh, distraughtness. Uh, and he concurred, oh, I forgot to turn off the phone, excuse me. And he concurred in that feeling. Bear in mind that John Dugard and Richard Goldstone are colleagues, they're both from South Africa and they knew each other well. In any event, I bring it up because when I wrote my book on Gaza and I went through the evidence, it seemed to me pretty clear that he had been blackmailed, either mm. him or a member of his family. Goldstone's mm. daughter lives in Israel. So you can easily imagine, though I agree, I always have to be clear, I'm speculating. You could easily have imagined that Goldstone, and the speculation, Goldstone's daughter had an affair. Mossad digs it up, tells Goldstone it's going to be out in the open, and then the daughter begs and pleads. Daddy, please take it back. And that sort of stuff happens, and it puts someone like Goldstone in an impossible situation, because if you look at the actual evidence, there was no basis for his retraction. There was none. I go through it very systematically. So the Department of Dirty Tricks, as it was called in the era of Richard Nixon, the Department of Dirty Tricks could dig up some information of someone, then the recantation, then after the recantation, the discrediting of the entire South African presentation. That stuff happens in the real world. I remember when a person communicated to me that they were concerned about Israel, Israel's Department of Dirty Tricks doing something like that. I thought to myself, oh God, I just hope their records are clean. <laughs> just but nobody's record is clean, as you know. Everybody's got dirt in their closet. Um, so yes, I think what you're saying is true, that some uh, uh, a rabbit might be pulled from the hat. I have no idea. Yeah. Uh, well, what, so if if we take as a given, since we all seem to agree that Netanyahu and filming that basically hostage video seems kind of panicked, there was reporting about how they're sending these urgent cables out around the world to try to pressure countries into making the sort of statements that our own country made that the case is meritless and it's anti-Semitic, et cetera, et cetera. What is it that they are specifically fearful of? Because um, the ICJ doesn't have an enforcement mechanism um, it's very possible that they rule against Israel and Israel just ignores it, enabled by the United States of America. So what are the consequences that you think that they are reacting to here? I think that's an excellent question. 
And once again, we enter into the realm or the terrain of speculation. Uh, as you know, when you've talked about it, and actually you were very effective in talking about uh, when, you, uh, uh, when you had your debate with Sagar over the civil disobedience, uh, the, the kinds of civil disobedience that have been resorted to uh, in the past week, the blocking of bridges and the Holland Tunnel, um, you said that um, uh, one of the purposes, and I thought this was also a shrewd remark, you said that the, the aim of the civil disobedience is not just to persuade the public, but to remind President Biden that we're not going to forget what's happening in Gaza. Uh, it's not going away, Mr. President. And a ruling that it's a genocide is going to be a very tough thing for Biden to carry uh, into November with his um, those 70% of the age cohort, 18 to 34, who don't like what he's doing. So I think that's one of the concerns that the U.S. has. And of course, Israel has the concern that if Biden says stop, we have to stop. Uh, so for both of them, I think a ruling will be a, a problem. Uh, it was very noticeable when Biden spoke in the church uh, a few days ago. And a handful of protesters, I think it was just three, but it may have been more, uh, started to call for a ceasefire. Uh, Biden says, uh, in his phlegmatic way, he mm -hmm. says, I'm doing everything I can. <laughs> and I've talked to Israel about it. Well, Mr. Biden, you're supplying the weapons. <laughs> so you obviously aren't doing everything you can, you could just stop sending the weapons and you could stop sending the money and you could stop exercising your veto. So when you plead to this, uh, the people in the pews that you've done everything you can, and then on top of that, that you are aiding and abetting genocide, if court rules in that direction, it'll be a big problem for him. And of course, you're correct. At the end of the day, nobody could do anything without the United States. But the United States might start exercising more pressure on Israel uh, if that genocide verdict comes down. So let me ask you this. I was surprised to learn when I listened to the Martyr Made podcast, which goes through the history of Israel and Palestine. I was surprised to learn that with the original partition plan when the U.N. was created, it was actually going to get voted down. But then there was some like straightforward bribery that happened right. and the partition plan ended up getting passed. So my question for you is, does that so is that something that you fear with this ICJ case that potentially oh, there will be outright bribery? Yeah, you look, you're, you're totally correct. There were several states uh, where the U.S. Remember, I'm not, again, I'm not being disparaging. I'm just trying to be factual. There were essentially banana republics totally under the control of the United States. We're talking right after World War II, uh, where countries <clears throat> in the non-Western world had very little autonomy. Uh, you know, the United States in that era would routinely overthrow governments, and nobody even thought it was particularly wrong to do it. That's mm -hmm. how great powers carried on. Uh, and so there were several states uh, whose arms were twisted. Uh, Liberia, I, Liberia, I think Haiti, but don't hold me to it, 
I mean, I used to know all the states, but I, I've forgotten now because uh, I've written so much on it. Um, yes, their arms were twisted. Uh, oh, well, yes, it was Harvey Firestone of Firestone Rubber who used his sway with Liberia because Liberia's main export was rubber. Mm. Uh, and then there were a few others. Yes, and that's how it passed. The thing I would say it's a little different now, a little different now is uh, in the era in which we live, the epoch in which we live, you can't quite be so crude. Now, there has been, of course, elements of crudeness. So, for example, in 1990, when the U.S. embarked on what was called the first Gulf War, there was a Security Council meeting, and the United States wanted unanimity on that Security Council vote that effectively sanctioned war. One country dissented. It was uh, the Republic of South Yemen. And the famous remark, they voted no. They didn't authorize uh, the first Gulf War. And the famous remark by the American at the time was, it said to South Yemen, I think it was called the People's Republic of South Yemen. The remark was, quote, that's going to be the most expensive vote you ever cast. Mm. <laughs> As in the screws now will be turned. If you go to the IMF, if you go to the World Bank, you're not getting a dime. Uh, so obviously that threat still looms, not in as gross, uh, vulgar, crude way. The threat looms. And, uh, and to the point of your question, it's a very striking fact that of all the countries in the world, only South Africa found the courage to, to uh, present a case not one Arab country, they could have done it. Not one Arab country made, took the initiative. Even the Latin American countries, which have been quite good on this, they've always been good. They are the only ones in the third world who have shown real independence. Um, even the Latin American countries, they have denounced what Israel is doing, but they wouldn't take the next step. And, uh, so the Arab countries, Muslim countries, did Turkey do anything? Did Pakistan do anything? So of all the countries in the world, only one found the moral wherewithal, that internal moral wherewithal to take on the US, because you're not taking on Israel, you're taking on the United That's States right. when you That's put right. forth, when you do that. And it's an incredible, really an incredible testament to South Africa that it took that initiative. It was very courageous. And remember, there are different ways to take an initiative. You can just file a formal complaint and leave it at that. But they persisted. One of the points that John Dugard made on the question of whether um, they had, whether this was a dispute the point he made was, since October 7th, we have kept telling Israel this is a genocide and you've got to stop. We made a statement here, we made a statement there, we made a statement there. So their persistence in taking this initiative. And then that magnificent brief 
they follow they filed those 84 pages of exhaustively documented atrocities that are occurring and the fact that they sent a very significant delegation you know i would never ever ever have thought that any state in defense of the people of gaza who have nothing to offer in return you know the expression quid pro quo this for that yeah well there was no this for that gaza has nothing to offer anybody it has a leadership which everybody loathes hamas and it has a completely impoverished population it had no quid for the pro quo and so it's just a magnificent testament to South Africa that A, it took the initiative, B, it persisted, C, it wrote a brilliant uh, document, and D, it commissioned a very significant delegation, which I might add was a beautiful de de delegation because it consisted of men and women, whites and blacks, it was the new South Africa. Yeah. You saw in their presentation today, the new South Africa, the women were as strong as the men, the blacks were as strong as the whites. It was a testament to South Africa's humanity in a double sense, sticking up for the most wretched of the earth and demonstrating how in a relatively short period of time, because I have vivid memories when, when Nelson Mandela left uh, Robbins Island, you know, left the prison, uh, he famously held up the clenched fist and his first word was Amandla, uh, power. Um, in, in a short period of time, South Africa was presenting the new face of South Africa and also for the world, an entirely, uh, uh, representative in terms of race and in terms of sex uh, and very professional, deeply moving. It was uh, by the lowly standards of our state system where everybody is so cowardly yeah. and just looking out for their own interests. I would challenge you to tell me another example of, of a state that was staked so much, a state that stake so much for another people with nothing in return. It's nothing. hard to think of. What, I mean, it's it's poetic. What, what do you get for defending Gaza? Too. Even the Palestinian Authority hates Gaza. You know, they're mm -hmm. happy to see Israel destroy Hamas and Gaza, mm -hmm. whatever mm -hmm. they say. Everybody hates Gaza. And for South Africa to do that, uh, uh, Two thumbs up, as John Dugard would say. Um, I want to ask you, you know, I, based on the portion I listened to, based on reading the brief, I look at it, I'm like, I don't know how you counteract that. Like, I don't know what the defense is to respond to all of these claims. But, of course, Israel will mount a defense. Um, what do you think are likely to be some of their strongest points? What do you think are some of the potential weaknesses in the South Africa case? Oh. Uh, I thought, as I said, when I was uh, speculating, playing a pundit last night with Maureen Rabani, I thought South, uh, South Africa was going to lean on the facts. 
the what's you know they call it um actus uh i i well i forgot the technical term but what's been done to gaza and my guess was the israelis are going to focus on the law they're going to say this is a genocide convention you have to make a plausible case for genocide but what actually is happening is that uh, we were subjected to this traumatic horrible thing on October 7, the worst killing of Jews since the Nazi Holocaust. And of course, uh, the justice they put on the, uh, the Israeli justice who was added to the ICJ for these proceedings, uh, Aharon Barak, he advertises himself as a Holocaust survivor. So they'll play the Holocaust card to the hilt and then say that, yes, We'll even agree some terrible things could ha will happen, and that's why we have a legal system in order to prosecute those who committed wrongful acts. And of course, we have already prosecuted three or four people. Uh, however, even if we were to take your claims on face value, which we don't, but even if we did, number one, under the international legal system, before you go to an international body, you have to give the domestic body a chance to uh, litigate itself, to hold people accountable itself. You can't run to an international body before the domestic body uh, has had a chance. The domestic legal system has a chance to uh, hold people accountable. And then they're going to say, even if we accepted everything you say, it's not a genocide. They're going to say, that we are facing an existential threat from Hamas. And that Hamas uses people as human shields, and it's a very densely populated place, and blah, 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 blah. And therefore, you can't, uh, it doesn't meet the legal definition of a genocide. So my guess was, and I think it's fair to say, the, the most compelling aspects of today's presentation were the emotive aspects. And I want to just clarify again, I'm not saying that in the negative, because you define a crime against humanity or a crime of a high magnitude as one that shocks the conscience of humanity. And that's an emotional as much as an intellectual response. So I guess tomorrow, the focus is going to be on the law because they cannot win on the facts. Mm. Disaster. Even today, let's take the remark by uh, Netanyahu. He said, we warned them, we gave leaflets, and we gave them time to leave. And that was already anticipated. One of the presenters said, one of the South African presenters said, and I'm calling her now, she said, on October 13th, the entire population in the north of Gaza was given 24 hours to leave. That was what they were given, including, she said, the elderly, the wounded, the lame. That's 24 hours. They were given 24 hours to leave. Uh, is that a reasonable warning or is that genocide? So even the you already have the answer to the things he said today uh, in the clip that you played. So mm. my guess is 
they're going to steer clear of the factual record, except to say, you know, the usual human shields, densely populated. Uh, yes, some excesses occur, but our legal system takes into account of them, and then focus on the law. They have a very good lawyer. He, he's a complete sleaze. You know, he's a gun to, uh, his name is Malcolm Shaw. Uh, he's their lead lawyer. Not Dershowitz, sadly. Yeah, that's a shame. <laughs> you know, a number of people wrote, please, God, let Dershowitz be their yeah. lawyer. <laughs> I was one of them. I was one of them that asked that. Norm, let, let me ask you this question, uh, because I want you to address one of the arguments I hear, like, most often on this issue. And we'll call it the Sam Harris and Bill Maher argument. The mm -hmm. idea goes something like this. We're in a we're in a clash of civilizations and Israel and Jews represent a more modern, enlightened uh, philosophy, whereas Muslims represent a more draconian, primitive, uh, unreformed religious ideology. And so in any sort of dispute between the enlightened ones and the ones who are in the dark ages, uh, we're, of course, going to side with the enlightened ones because we're good uh, secular liberals. The argument goes something like that. How do you respond to Bill Maher and Sam Harris and that argument? Well, I want to just separate out two issues. That argument obviously is not going to fly into court and nobody would of course, yeah. Nobody's there. There are Muslims sitting on the, you know, the uh, ICJ, so they're not going to make that kind of uh, argument. Um, and also, part of that argument, to the extent if it were made tomorrow, which I think it's unlikely, but part of the argument has already been anticipated. You can, uh, by Vaughn Lowe, you can be in a war with anybody, but. Genocide is a peremptory norm. That means there are no extenuations. You cannot do it full stop. So however horrendous the attack was on October 7th, it could never justify a genocide as a reaction. As to this, the question, leaving aside the legal issue and just sort of the general issue, uh, when Sam Harris spoke uh, on Pierce Morgan, of course, he said that there's a prodigious number of suicide bombers, uh, and uh, this is something unthinkable, he called it, uh, in any other situation, uh, any other place in the world, any other religion, any other culture, and so forth. Um, and it does get you, it, do, it does cause you to wonder, okay? And you, are, of course, are free to push back. <clears throat> well, I have to be careful, yeah, because I have to do interviews, I have to be careful about the time. Um, uh, so what does a suicide bomber do? Uh, during the Second Intifada, uh, began in uh, began in September uh, September 2000, what was called the second civil uprising in Israel. I always talk as if everybody knows, but it's already ancient history. I'm talking about a quarter century ago. So during the second intifada, uh, members of Hamas strapped explosives on themselves, went on buses, and blew up the buses. Okay, so uh, that's horrible. I'm not going to dispute that. And I was one of the few people uh, 
within my political camp who wouldn't accept that. I <clears throat> I was on record clearly. I I didn't I, I wouldn't support that. Um, but what does Israel do? So you ask yourself. Israel targets hospitals. Israel targets ambulances. Just yesterday, I mean, the country is so brazen, it's so out of control, it's so mad, it's so lunatic, it's like something out of a, um, a Kurosawa movie, that the day before the ICJ hearings are beginning, it targets an ambulance and kills six people. Any other country would exercise a little discretion on the eve, on the eve of the ICJ hearings charging them with genocide. But they're mad. They've been driven completely lunatic. In any case, in any case, uh, if you compare the two acts, compare the two acts, what is a hospital? A hospital houses the lame, the ill, the near dead, and the newly born. That's a hospital. And you're targeting it. If you read the Human Rights Watch report, which already came out uh, probably more than a month ago, it says that Israel is systematically targeting, excuse me, uh, yeah, Israel is systematically targeting uh, Gaza's hospitals. And it says, we have not seen, this is what they say, we have not seen any military justification. So along comes uh, Bill Maher and Sam Harris, and they say this is a, a civilizational war between the enlightened and the, uh, uh, the enlightened and the backward, or as Netanyahu echoing Mar and Harris, or Harris and Mar echoing um, Netanyahu, it's a war between the sons of lightness and the sons of darkness. Okay, so. I ask the question, I'm not asking it rhetorically, I'm happy for your pushback. Who is the lightness and who is the darkness? You're targeting hospitals and that's the lightness? Now, as a factual matter, people may not like me saying it, the fact of the matter is, at least the Hamas people show raw physical courage. <laughs> They're willing to blow themselves up. Mm. What do the Israelis show? These are high-tech massacres. These are high-tech exercises in barbarism. Israel, in this particular operation, has crossed a neg negative threshold in barbarism. You cannot find in the modern world any country as a matter of state policy systematically targeting hospitals. It just isn't there. On every metric, Mr. Harris and Mr. Marr, on every metric that's been put forth, numbers of UN staff killed, no comparison between what Israel has done in Gaza and anywhere else in the world since the time it was first being recorded number of journalists killed, number of healthcare workers killed. On every metric, devastation. There wasn't as much devastation comparatively to the size of the population and the uh, size of the terrain. Even when the US, even the Allied bombing of Dresden, 
So even if you go back to World War II, you can't find a comparison. And those are considered, as you know, dark chapters. The carpet bombing of the German cities, which is carpet bombing is just a fancy term for terror bombing. The bombing of Dresden, those are considered dark chapters in our own history. Not that we haven't committed massive uh, chapters. I'm just talking about this notion of enlightenment versus backwardness. So I, for one, I, for one, can't see how suicide bombings are somehow uh, emanations of a darkened soul, whereas targeting of systematic targeting of hospitals does not fall into that same category, but somehow is reflective of enlightenment. If you take the enlightened country, just compare it to the United States for a moment. And I don't sing the praises of the United States. I'm not a patriot in that sense. But you will remember during our own civil rights movement, uh, during the demonstrations in places like uh, I guess it was Montgomery, uh, the using of the fire hoses on the kids, and that outraged, that outraged the public opinion in the United States. So Israel had its own, excuse me, Gaza had its own comparable attempt at nonviolent civil disobedience, it was called a, a Great March of Return. Uh, it began March 30th, 2018. What did Israel do? Look at the human rights reports. Israel targeted for death children, targeted for death journalists, targeted for death medical personnel, and targeted for death, go read the report, people with disabilities, people in wheelchairs were targeted. They were 300 meters away from the border with Israel. And they were just the snipers targeted for them for death and then targeted the kneecap and below of the demonstrators in order to inflict on them what are called life-changing injuries, what we would call permanent injuries, permanently disabling them for life. Mm. Could that have happened in the United States during the civil rights movement? No, it could not have happened. That was state policy. No. And then in the midst of all of this, yesterday, I have to watch that time because I have to do, I'm going to have to end at this. You'll excuse me, but I have all these interviews scheduled on the ICJ hearings. Um, the, the Save the Children yesterday or two days ago, it came out with a report every day, every day as we speak today, 10 children in Gaza, in Gaza are uh, going to get one or two amputations of their legs. With no anesthesia. And with no anesthesia. 10 children a day. Now, you know, you know, when you see a kid in the street who has cerebral palsy or any other physical affliction, 
your heart leaps out to them. You try to do any kind of generous act to acknowledge their humanity, a wave of your hand, a smile, to give a validation to their life. Now you ask yourself a question. Truth be told, how often do you see kids with double amputations? I don't know, never have. Yeah, you heard what you just said? Yeah. Never have, never have. And here, 10 children a day. And then these monsters, these moronic moral monsters, these Sam Harris's and these Bill Mars and these Jordan Petersons and these um, Ben Shapiro's come out and speak about the civilizational war against barbarism. It's so pitiful, so contemptible how these folks carry on. Fortunately, I think they're significantly in the minority right now, and that gives one some hope for humanity. There was one fellow, I won't name him, who uh, continues to carry on in that vein of moral imbecility on his program, which is broadcast. And I notice that he gets fewer and fewer and fewer and fewer viewers. And I derive a certain gratification. I was thinking about that uh, the other day. He follows through on his hateful logic, the hateful logic to the point that he's sinking now in his own moral mucus. Mm. I hope yeah. that's Ben Shapiro that you're referring to, but I no. don't know. <laughs> no. no. We'll ask you afterwards. Yeah, we'll ask you when we're off air. <laughs> uh, I, know, I know you need to go. Um, yeah. We're really grateful for your time. I know there are a lot of demands on your time today. And just to bring it back to something you were saying about how these crimes against humanity are meant to shock the conscience. That has been one thing that has been both horrifying and heartening, the number of people who do find their conscience shocked, but also the astounding number who somehow are not shocked by things like 10 children per day losing limbs and being having those limbs amputated without anesthetic. So um, Dr. Finkelstein, it's always a pleasure. Thank you so much. My pleasure, and thank you. All right, so that was Norm Finkelstein. Um, I almost got to all the questions that I wanted to ask, believe it or not. One thing I, I didn't ask him, which I was going to, is are you as surprised as I am that there's so much debate around an issue which appears at this point to be just so utterly black and white based on the evidence coming yeah. out of there. Uh, it would have been interesting to get his response to that. We got a little bit of a sense of that with what he was saying there at the end about how more and more people are seeing yeah, things but is, I guess it's, I don't, in this very clear Would you say way. it's like a fake debate, like top down, like you have people in media and people who are politicians sort of, they're so insistent on their wrong position that it almost drags uh, drags us into thinking there's a sense of a 50-50 debate going on? Well, no, I think it's, I mean, you covered, and I also did a monologue on that media analysis that yes. shows the systematic dehumanization of Palestinians, of how all of the like evocative language is used with regards to Israelis. They were massacred. They were murdered. Meanwhile, Palestinians just die. No 
attribution. There aren't emotional interviews with their family members. You know, I played this Sky News report where they refer to a three-year-old little girl as a young lady. Right. And contrasted that with a Daily Mail article where they refer to soldier. four IDF female IDF soldiers, adult women as girls. So, um, you know, I mean, that for especially older generations who are relying for their news sources exclusively on this and they have this old Cold War mentality of like, oh, well, they're on our side and they're the good guys and these are the bad guys, whatever. I think a lot of people who haven't really grappled with the issue just have these sort of like knee-jerk reactions. Mm. So I do think it's a, unfortunately a real debate. I think if everybody was just on TikTok, <laughs> they would actually get much more accurate understanding of what's really unfolding here because, I mean, this is one of the other, the things that I've been struggling with is I saw this tweet that was like, I feel stupid that I thought that we all agreed bombing babies and burying them under rubble and amputating their limbs every day with an anesthetic that these are bad things that nothing can justify and clearly like we are not all on the same page there so i don't know it's one of the one of the horrors of this moment i will say um you know having spoken to norm a few times over the course of this period um his mood was almost like lighter i think he really is i think there is a sense of relief that there's something happening. Something. something is happening. Yes. There is some sort of international body that's taking these claims seriously where the charges are being laid out, that there is one country in the world that had the courage to actually, you know, mount this case and present these charges, that Netanyahu seems to be totally freaked out by the possibility that, you know, there could be an injunction issued and they could find that it's plausible they're committing genocide and that could actually have some impacts on Israel and potentially on the U.S., so, um, you know, I, too, am, look, it's a small thing to take when you still have people under constant bombardment and literally starving to death every single day. But it, it is at least a little bit heartening that something, something is happening. I mean, my ultimate fear, though, is that um, since the ICJ doesn't have any enforcement mechanism, there's no ICJ army, right, to, like, sort of uphold it, the U.S., is the world's strongest superpower and we're the ones that have all the military might and all the weapons and so basically effectively we control the shots we do still live in like a might makes right kind of world and so my fear is that even if things go properly and you know they say we're issuing an injunction you can't keep doing this and then eventually they find israel guilty um i just fear it won't mean much you know and uh it almost it, it's funny because the right hilariously runs on like law and order in elections and right. of course they mean it domestically and they only mean it for the laws that they care about so it's breaking a gun law they don't give a fuck because they're against the gun laws whatever well, for the people that they want to see the law enforced against exactly yeah. but like i actually believe in law and order in the sense that i wish we had a sort of international framework that was fairly and objectively uh enforced like yeah. i want international law to mean something i want the nuremberg tribunal and the geneva conventions to mean something because right. if if that's not the case then I don't think we've advanced beyond even medieval ages. Well, that's the thing that's really at stake here. That's really at stake here. Because, I mean, there are two possible outcomes that are like final nail in the coffin for even the pretense of international law. One is that they dismiss us all. No, it's not plausible. Israel, you're good to go. You're not committing genocide. Good luck to you in your fight against, you know, hunting down Hamas. So that's one plausible outcome that is nail final nail in the coffin for the international order 
The second one is that they actually agree with South Africa, at least on the initial finding. And that nothing changes. And that it doesn't matter. Yeah. That it doesn't matter at all. I do think it's ironic that, you know, you're talking about, like, the civilized world and the barbarians, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, it's ironic that the countries that are standing up for, quote, unquote, Western values are, like, South Africa and Brazil. And it's Mm -hmm. not the United States of America um, who, you know, of course, architected this post-World War II order and is supposed to care about such things. So, you know, that signals a real shifting, too, in terms of the world. But my— my reading is that even if Israel and the U.S., or I guess my hope, I should say, even if Israel and the U.S. are bound and determined to ignore a uh, you know finding of it's plausible you're committing genocide, even if they want to ignore it, it's still going to be a difficult thing for them to grapple with. Because Israel, Israel becomes a pariah state. Yes. Nobody wants to trade with them. So Some there's all their- these other— actions that impact them in a way absolutely yeah i I mean that's right that's very likely and i hope at least that happens turkey has signed on to this case turkey is a saudi arabia has turkey is a major trading partner with israel france is a major trading partner with israel saudi arabia was inches away from normalizing relations they signed on to this case as well france has said they will abide by they didn't sign on to the case but they've said they will abide by the ruling so these are potential significant economic impacts on israel and then also that ostr- like ostracizing them, like you're saying, making them a pariah state in the world. Israel is built on They're very proud of their high tech sector. It's a, a global economy. You know, so to have the world retreat and treat them like pariahs, even if they still have us standing by them till the end, that's not inconsequential. Did you see what Saudi Arabia said? They said, first of all, they signed on to the case. Second of all, they said, look, we're still open to normalization talks. But now one of the things you have to do in order for us to make a deal is have a Palestinian state. state. There needs to be a Palestinian state. Yeah. And so, yeah, you get all these different things that are coalescing. Um, Yeah, I mean, I guess I'm a little jaded by the war on terror era and the U.S. blowing off the U.N. and international law and Abu Ghraib and uh, Guantanamo Bay and torture of innocent people and displacing millions of people like that didn't seem to matter. And so I'm sort of, I fear that here as well. It might be the, it might be the case that since this is like Israel's kind of like a client state of the U.S., even though we pretend like that's not the case, they're literally a colonial outpost of the United States, right? Yeah. That actually might make it so the law might matter more because you're not actually the big dog, right? You know what I mean? You're the big dog's like rambunctious teenage kid. You know what I'm saying? And so I it's do. like let's drop the hammer on them. I also feel like it gives um, activists and dissenting politicians in the U.S. It gives them a tool to work with. So right now, the policy of the State Department is like, we're not going to investigate any of these potential war crimes. We're just going to assume they're not happening. And of course, they're going to do that, because if you're investigating Israel's war crimes, you're basically investigating your own war crimes. So Mm -hmm. they're just pretending like we're just not going to look into it. We're just going to assume everything's fine. Well, if you have this official ICJ, you know, UN finding of it is plausible they're committing genocide, well, that opens up avenues of pressure especially with regard to some of the laws on the books, like the Leahy Act, that are meant to prevent our weapons from going to bomb civilians. And so, you know, will it in and of itself compel Biden to change his position and change behavior and put pressure on Israel? No, but it potentially opens up some tools that activists and dissenting politicians can use to pressure the the administration into a different position. So uh, 
I have been persuaded by the reaction and the freakout from the Israelis. That it matters that it, a little more than what that you That is actually consequential. Yeah. That's what changed my mind more than anything is like, oh, they clearly think that this matters. So there is more here than I initially just my jaded reaction was like, ah, it's not going to make any difference. So just I want to point this out. Bernie Sanders yeah. apparently last night invoked Section 502B yeah. of the Foreign Assistance Act. Uh, which will force a Senate vote on Israeli human rights abuses. If it gets a bare majority, the State Department is required to investigate and report back. And after that report, Congress votes on whether to block military aid to Israel. Now, ultimately, this might just be sort of a symbolic thing where you go through the motions because the Senate is all bought by AIPAC and the Israel lobby, and so it might not matter. But it shows that at least now, even domestically in the U.S., there's some breaking with the narrative because you can only deny it for so long. Well, and I have to give credit to Ryan Graham. Yeah, he, he brought it up, or Emily Jashinsky brought it up. He was the first one um, to bring this up and say, hey, there is, you know, this mechanism that could be deployed here that is a, a credible way of forcing them to, you know, condition aid and actually look into the war crimes. Yeah, but I mean, I would say it literally already is illegal under the Leahy Act to sell weapons to human rights abusers, and we just ignore it. When it's our, our allies, we go, they're not doing human rights abuses by definition because they're our friends. Yeah, well, you know what I mean? especially with Israel, we've always— oh. Forget it. With Always Israel. look the other way. Um, Saudi Arabia too, though. The final thing that I wanted to ask him, but I didn't get to bring up, but he actually re referenced Jordan Peterson anyway. Yeah. But I had a Jordan Peterson question. I was going to reference at the beginning of this thing. Uh, Peterson tweeted to Netanyahu, "Give them hell." Right. And then um, he also, in all these interviews, talks about how the Abraham Accords, like they were this immense, glorious peace deal. Like I don't think he knows anything about international politics. I don't think he has any idea what the actual purpose was of the Abraham Accords. Like the whole point was a fuck you to Palestinians. Right. It's like we're going to make a peace deal with a country that we're not at war with and we, we're not we don't have any issues with. And it's a way to like circumvent Palestinians. It's to a way to basically just pretend like these people don't exist. Of course. So I don't think he understands, but he brings it up all the time. Is this like glorious, you know, oh, breakthrough or whatever. Yeah. And he jacks off Trump in the process of talking of about course. that. Yeah. And then and I was also going to reference his he wrote an article where it's the classic like the oh, anti-Semitism is on the left and it's terrible. And there were all these pro-Palestine protests, but they're really pro-Hamas protests. Mm -hmm. I wanted him to respond to all that garbage. I know Norm has found it endlessly amusing based on his other commentary. I've seen that that Bill Ackman billionaire. Oh, that guy's pushed down the Harvard president. Oh, plagiarism so serious and she should be fired not only from her president job but also as a teacher etc cetera, etc cetera. and then it turns out his wife yeah plagiarized. Oh, did my wife plagiarized what it really is plagiarism yeah, i don't right? think it counts this here's is, a seven thousand word essay <laughs> and my favorite was she's an intensely private person yeah and meanwhile everybody's tweeting out like oh, oh really here she is on multiple magazine covers and like giving ted talks or whatever i mean it's just preposterous but the, also sort of hilarious the small brain position is that billionaires are just uh, geniuses who naturally have risen to the top of okay. society yeah the mid uh, range brain position is like they're just like everybody else the big brain position is they're actually significantly dumber they're than everybody actually else. worse they're actually the dumbest motherfuckers on the planet who tripped over their own dicks and got lucky and fell into a bunch of money and now think they're god's gift to earth and they write twelve thousand word essays owning themselves on a daily basis exposing their massive hypocrisy <laughs> to the world World, like Bill Ackman. I just, I'm enjoying every time one of his new, like, multi-page yeah. screen drops, I enjoy, I don't read them, but I just enjoy knowing it exists because I'm imagining, he's, he's on vacation. 
Yeah, he's like, a billionaire on vacation, and he's like, to be like oh, lo- you oh, know, must the respond world to the internet. Mm-hmm. And he's sitting there feverishly typing out these things. That that gives me joy. It's probably no fun to be inside of his head. My wife's plagiarism it. doesn't matter, but Claudine Gay's does. Right. And everybody's an anti-Semite. If you've ever said a bad word about Israel, you're an anti-Semite. God, these people are such losers. Anyway, look, we'll wrap it up on that. Everybody do us a big favor. If you like the show, if you support the show, if you enjoy it, uh, sign up on Substack. That link's below. And uh, remember, you can always sign up for free, too, on Substack if you want. And then uh, you get the audio podcast of every interview and you get it a day later. Remember, we never talk to any advertisers for this podcast. So if you can pay five bucks a month to get a video interview, it would mean the world to us. Uh, We hope you guys enjoyed it and we will see you next week.